Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I am Mecca Don here with my co-host V. What's up? Today is December 19th, 2019. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. On today's show, we will talk the bizarre Takashi 69 case and get weigh-in from criminal lawyer Dimitri Dubé on sentencing and judicial discretion. We are also blessed to be joined by prominent NFL insider Jason LaCanfora to talk Browns, Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson, and more, and we'll try to pry some insider information from him. We'll give a fantasy football update, <laughs> and we'll talk, about our re- talk with our resident college football insider, Zach Smith, about coaching turnover and more. Let's get into it. Let's go. Where the pilot boys at? You are listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. Let's talk some Takashi 69. Daniel Hernandez, aka Takashi 69 is a 23-year-old rapper from Brooklyn who rose to fame in 2017 when his hit Gummo hit the charts. Known for his I-don't-give-a-fuck attitude, stupid, <laughs> and social media antics, he's quickly becoming one of the most entertaining, entertaining yet dangerous acts in the game. And after his arrest last year, he was facing up to 47 years in prison under his guilty plea for racketeering, conspiracy, and a ton of other charges. This is all before he cooperated or snitched on a bunch of members from his non-trade blood gang, which he had claimed to be a member of. Recent reports were saying that he was going to get out as early as this week with no additional jail time as a result of time served. Other reports contradicted that. The sentencing is up to the discretion of the judge, who just handed down his sentence yesterday. 24 months in prison. 13 of those months have already been served. And then five years probation after that. And we're going to talk to criminal lawyer Dimitri Dubé a little later to help us break this all down. But V and Joe, where do we even start with this one? (laughs) This story is fascinating, you know, because there's so many layers to it. Um, You know, Takashi was one of the most popular rappers, but some people were even confused by his existence. You know what I mean? Like 6ix9ine this, 6ix9ine that. Yeah, because his existence was like brash and bold. And some people even thought he might have even been a plant. So a couple of things I want to talk to you guys about and talk through before we get to Dimitri is like, you know, he'll be out like tomorrow, you know, pretty much. And so V, you know, like, will his reputation, you know, being a snitch, will his brand kind of be damaged by that? Or do you think that he will legitimately bounce back because of all the notoriety that's brought? And one other thing, I don't know if this is true or not, but they said that there's like a $10 million record deal waiting for him. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but how do you think this thing is going to actually play out for his career? I mean, if we're looking at 2019, I think people will tune in, right? Because they're interested in him now. The question is, where does he go direction-wise from here, right? Like, he's known for rapping about some violent shit, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how can he justify that now that he is a snitch, right? And then how is he going to be received by the industry, which this isn't, accepted in right because there's some people saying they're already not going to interview him and they're not going to deal with him and all that stuff but 
Yeah, but the people are going to want to hear his story mm-hmm. when he comes out of jail. I mean, I think the fact that he got such a short sentence, which me personally, I think, I think, this is my personal opinion, that he was a plant from the beginning because mm. the whole story didn't make sense. Like this mm. random little dweeb is in one of the most notorious <laughs> gangs in the world all of a sudden. and Threatening violence like every day. Every day. Like who does that? Insinuating like on, violence. On Instagram, on social media. So it's like when you look at the sentence and you say he was facing 47 years and he gets 23 months, it's like, okay, well, I don't know. Something's fishy here. Right. Um, but I think he will, he will, at least initially, people will be curious, but it's going to be interesting because he can't be that same person. He's got to reinvent himself. And I don't know if he can, because I know his music before he reinvented himself as a gangster was not selling. Yeah. Right? Well, here, here's a question I got for you. If he is a plant, the short term, the short sentencing doesn't it give him the perfect opportunity to do the redemption story? If he is a, a, a plant, which would be crazy. Like as a Christian rapper or something? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's my theory going forward. I, I'm, mean, I think he is who he is, kind of. You know what I mean? It's going to be hard for him to change. Yeah. And I think that in a lot of ways, I have to imagine he's thinking, ha, ha, mm-hmm. ha, stupid. I beat the system again. He has to be thinking that. Like, fuck these dudes. From nine tray, that's what he's thinking. I don't care about them. They didn't care about me, and now I'm about to be out and free, and I'm gonna have security around me just like I did before, and I'm gonna go back and talk about the same things that I did before. And what's interesting is, it seems like this generation, and maybe I'm wrong, and not even just this generation, kind of just society now, doesn't really care about authenticity the way that they no. used to care about it right. before. What's your What's your thought on that? Joe? Well, yeah, I mean that's exactly what I'm thinking. Like. Okay, the judge provided multiple examples to him in which he threatened people. Uh, it's on video, putting money on Chief Keith's head. Mm-hmm. They shot. They they let off shots in the Barclays Center. Mm. Like that's like that's in, like right. bringing a lot of violence to a community. And then not to mention acting as a front for a gang who was selling, like, heroin and, and guns and performing, like, hits. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that tell people going forward that, like, media and entertainment is, like, what's that allow for? Like, it's, it's just, like, puzzling to me because he can say all these things and, like, pretty much cause a federal trial and in a year and a half, he's going to come out again. And then, like, what happens there? It's, it's for the very- money he made for doing this a year and a half. It's like a lot of people would make that trade off. Give me two years for $10 million. Yeah. Uh, well, I might do that. <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> and Joe, that brings me actually to an interesting point. Another question for you, V, is kind of the responsibility, right? Because we can obviously, Takashi is, is his own young man. He's 23 years old and he has his own identity and ideas. But there are other people involved who are also involved from the record label, from marketing people, so on and so even even media who give them a platform. And I guess my question to you is, what is what is the responsibility of the, you know, you know, the record label or, you know, the people who are promoting him or even media uh, when it comes to when it comes to his brand and promoting his brand and and you know, kind of moving forward. What is their responsibility here? Or is it just capitalism? Let's get as much money as we can as long as we're not doing anything illegal, it's fine. 
That's capitalism, right? Yeah. And capitalism in America, free market society, you can literally make money off of anything, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is a responsibility factor here that needs to be considered, right? It's like, um, you know, it's like, what what do you do in a situation where by promoting an artist who promotes violence, violence is happening in society, right? Right. This is, this is if you really look at the Takashi 69 story, the artist that he had the most beef was Trippy Red. He was signed to the same record label. So the thing is, it's like everybody's got accountability here, right? The nine track guys are going to jail for whatever length of time Takashi's in jail. He's going to jail. But the record label isn't giving back any of the money that they made, and they're not facing any of the consequences. And this goes back decades in hip-hop, right, where the industry creates these narratives. A lot of these guys aren't even really gangsters. And they create these narratives, and they don't care about the consequences that it's having on young guys. And, and, And personally, I don't agree that 18 is a time where everybody is prepared. That's the first time you go out into adulthood. So when somebody throws a bunch of money at you, whether it's 5000 or 100000 and they say, hey, you just have to do this and you can make money. Most 20-year-olds don't have a bunch of money in their bank account. Mm-hmm. It's like, obviously, he's going to do it, yeah. right? A lot of kids at that age would make that trade-off for fame, fortune, and success. Yeah. So there is an accountability. Like we say with the NCAA, there is a responsibility that these record labels and adults should be held to because... Like Joe said earlier, there are real consequences. People could have died at the Barclays Center. Kids, I see a story every day about a rapper getting shot, and you can't say that these lyrics and words don't have an influence, but it's not on the kids only. It's on the record labels right. who are promoting this more than the kid, in my opinion. And, and one thing to point out, I've watched Takashi 69 from the moment he got on Instagram and started just hollering like the way he was. Mm-hmm. And all that said to me was, this is someone telling this kid that your hits come from Instagram. Your money comes from Instagram. The things mm. that you're saying are coming from Instagram. And that is the label. Like, they exploited him because he would just say anything. Yeah. And they move away with no consequence. No. Right? Yeah. 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 That's the sad part about it. Again, it doesn't absolve him of responsibility. And I don't think either one of you guys is saying that. <clears throat> but it does raise an interesting point on exploitation, capitalism, uh, what are responsibilities? Is the responsibility just to, to make your money? and Or is there a moral obligation? Is there a bigger responsibility? And then there's also obviously um, kind of the criminal side and the legal side of this thing too, which I think is very interesting. And when we get back from break, we will talk to Dimitri Dubé, who is a criminal lawyer who's dealt with many cases of this nature, who's been practicing for the last 16 years, and he's going to give us color on what this thing means from a legal perspective. Stay tuned. You guys don't want to miss that. Stupid. Thanks for listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple and Spotify and follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Pilot Boys on YouTube. Don't forget, sharing is caring. I'm born to win. I'm born to win. I'm born to win. I'm born to win. I hustle, I hustle, I hustle, I hustle. I'm born to win. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. As you know, we've been talking about this Takashi 69 case from a number of different perspectives. 
And one of the things that we think is is interesting now that we've heard the sentence is how do judges come up with these sentences? You know, are there specific guidelines? Are there things that they must follow? What type of things do they take into account? So we are bringing in Dimitri Dubé, who is a federal criminal defense attorney who represents clients nationally. He is of Dimitri Dubé PC. Look him up. He's been practicing for 16 years and has a very, very impressive resume. Went to University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League, undergrad, and then went to NYU Law. Welcome to the show, Dimitri Dubé. Thanks, Beck. How are you? Hey, how are you, man? Thanks for joining us on the Pilot Boys podcast. How's everything? Everything is good, man. I'm ready to talk. All right, cool. So we just, you know, we just heard the, you know, what just happened with Takashi. You know, we've been following it for a while. There are conflicting reports out there before that with what was going to happen. Some people were saying that he was going to get essentially time served. And some people were saying he was going to get a longer sentence. And now we actually have it that he's been given 24 months in prison, uh, which 13 of those months he's already served. So really 11 more months. And then he's going to be on Mm -hmm. five five years probation. So I guess my first question to you as an attorney, as a criminal attorney, what was your first reaction when you heard the sentence handed down? Uh, so he, the first thought I have is that when you hear speculation as to what a federal defendant is going to get, all of that is pretty much nonsense. The only person that knows what a federal defendant is going to get is the judge. Mm-hmm. Because unlike state, unlike state sentencing, unlike you know some other cases, in the federal sentence, the judge has, you know, ultimate discretion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they, and they they take into account a number of factors, uh, in, into making the decision, mm-hmm. and then they and then they make the decision. Uh, when you ask what my reaction is to the twenty four months, I honestly believe that it's, I, I think it's lighter than I thought it would have been, mm-hmm. uh, given what I saw. Uh, you know, the description of everything that he's done and what the judge ran down during the sentencing hearing. So I think it's it's lighter than I thought it would have been. Uh, but, uh, you know, having said that, you know, the way that uh, a lot of federal crimes are investigated is through cooperators, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the government, the FBI, the DA, all those agencies, they use cooperators to a significant degree in order to make their cases. Right. Uh, because, and so th- there's a strong incentive, uh, there's a strong incentive uh, for people to cooperate uh, with the government for that reason. Because if, 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 if you look at it, if he had not cooperated, right, uh, his guidelines were 39 to 41 years. Mm. Let me say that again. 39 to 41 <laughs> years right. for a 23-year-old kid, right. okay? And, and, and so, um, you know, but when, you have the, when you've cooperated, what you have now it goes from an adversarial proceeding where it's you against the government in front of the judge, but now you're aligned with the, you're aligned with the government. And so here, right? so, so here's the thing that so my you know when I heard the sentence, I thought, yo, that that seems really light. But one of the things that you know we were talking about earlier was that the judge is kind of put in a, in a I don't want to say a tough situation, but a little bit of, it's a double edged sword because on one on one hand you want to punish people for the crimes that they've committed and not let, you know not reward quote unquote snitching. But on the other hand, like and this is part of what you're touching on, is you also want to encourage people to cooperate because they, you could bring down much bigger operations that way. And so my question so, is, yeah. So what, what factors do they look so, at when they determine the sentence? I, well, I cut you off a little bit because I wanted to correct something you said. Okay. Uh, the, 
because I, I, you know, you said, you know, on one hand, they want not to reward snitching. That's absolutely incorrect. Okay. Mm. I think the way that federal judges and prosecutors think, remember a lot of these judges were prosecutors themselves prior to becoming judges, right? Mm -hmm. Is they want to reward cooperating. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the because again, that's how you make bigger cases. That's how you take down the top echelons of a criminal organization. Mm. It's, it's, it's flowing upwards. Okay. Right. So, so what the streets may think, what we may think, or what other people uh, may think, is the, the the reward structure is actually opposite. Right, right. So I, you know, I guess. So, so so yeah, okay. So let me. I guess let me correct myself. I, I wasn't saying they don't want to reward snitching. What I meant was that, you know, this is a guy who participated in a lot of crimes, and so you mm -hmm. don't want to just let him off because. Because he's snitching is the point that I was trying to make. I, I kind of misspoke. Right. But at the same okay, time, the, the, you know, you, you also have to, you also have to, you know, get information from the informants. But one of the things that everyone's been curious about is what are the things that the judge actually looks at and how much discretion does the judge actually have in these type of situations? Okay. Okay. So, so let, let me explain uh, uh, federal sentencing uh, and, and the way that the process goes uh, 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 for your listeners. Uh, in, in the federal court, and this is different from the state court, but in the federal court, uh, the primary uh, way that people are sentenced is through the guidelines. There's a United States Sentencing Guidelines in which points are given for different characteristics of a particular offense, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's the offense level, and you, and you do that with, a, with your criminal history, and comes out there's a range, a recommended range, which you know, uh, which the guidelines say you should be sentenced. And the, the reason why we have the guidelines is the theory is, you know, if you have the same crime in New York and in, in Iowa and Idaho or in California, everybody starts off from the same place, right? right? When when you take all those factors into in, into account, and for Takashi, his guidelines here were, I believe. 459 months to 482 months. That's but 39 to 41 years, okay. right? So that was his guidelines. And when you look at it, 65% of people nationwide, when they come up to sentencing, they get sentenced within the guidelines, mm. okay? And, and, and so, but then when you have the guidelines, the judge has the authority to depart below the guidelines, okay? okay? I, I'm... Uh, and, and the judge has that. And when I said 65% of people are, are sentenced within the guidelines, 10% are sentenced above it, mm -hmm. and about 25% are sentenced below it. Mm -hmm. But one, one of the main factors of that 25%, one of the main sources of reasons why people go get sentenced below the guidelines is cooperation. Mm -hmm. Okay? So it's actually with, written within the guidelines to give credit for if, if you provide the government with substantial assistance to an existing or future prosecution. Mm. And so, uh, and typically what I would say most people, right. Uh, most people who, uh, cooperate, they typically get between half and one third of the guidelines. Takashi got much lower than that. Right, way lower. Right. Lower, yeah. And, and, but I, but I think the reasons for that is several. Number one, I, you know, and the judge, and the judge mentioned the two, and his lawyers did a really good job of mentioning this. 
is he is now the face of snitching, you know, as as the streets call yeah. it, or, uh, you know, of cooperating. Yeah, you know, and you know, and so that that's a great danger to himself, mm-hmm. right? That's a great a great danger to his family, and he knew that would be the case. Mm-hmm. And so the degree of harm that you subject subjecting yourself to is an important factor. I think where the judge gave him a lot of credit as a result. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, so I think that that's, that's a very significant factor. Uh, number two, I think he showed a fair bit of remorse. Okay. Um, uh, in, in, in what he had to say to the judge today and what he wrote to the judge prior to, prior to sentencing. Yeah. And the third thing is, uh, the bigger cases you give them, the more credit you get. Okay, mm. so I think one of the significant things I don't think you uh, many people know uh, there's a case I was recently indicted of a police officer who was running, I guess, heroin uh, uh, for for the what is it the train nine uh, um, uh, nine tray however you say it a blood group right? right? We can tell you're uh, a lawyer, bro. Yeah. <laughs> right? You ain't been in these streets. <laughs> Right. Well, um, so 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 that's a very big case. You know, uh, he helped them get a conviction when you went and you testify at a trial, you know, in public where everybody knows you get a big, you get a big break for that. So I think you know all the reasons are why the judge you know departed as far down as he did. Like, like I told you, I think prior to sentencing, I thought he was going to get between five and seven years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, um, the over under in Vegas was five and a half. Yeah, right. So th- that's what I, you know, th- that's why I thought he would get. But you know, but I think, uh, I think he got an extra credit. And the other thing too is he's very young. Yeah. Okay. And you know, so that, and that actually so brings I think me he, to something. That actually brings me to something real quick. You know, now you know. So I know you've dealt with a number of cases, and actually many cases like this. And now that he has, you know, been given this sentence, what? What is actually what actually happens now? What's the process? I mean, obviously he has to go to jail for the next 11, 11 months, and then he's on mm-hmm. probation. But what does that look like? Is he going to get protection from the government? Is he going to be in solitary confinement in jail because they realize he's a high profile person? Mm-hmm. You know what what is what is his next phase going to yeah, look like? And, and if you can just color that whole process, because I think he said that he's going to decline um, witness protection. Are there still protection measures in place for someone like this? even if he uh, declines witness protection? So a c- couple of things. So the next step is right now he's, he's probably um, um, in custody of U.S. Marshals, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what, what happens when you're in pretrial. The next step for him will be to go to BOP custody, the Bureau of Prisons. And that's where he's going to serve the next 13 months. Uh, and the last six months of which usually are, are served in the halfway house. Uh, and, and, and so he's like getting six you know, months, basically. This is crazy. So, and and, 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 and in his case, he might actually uh, get some degree of home confinement because, again, of the of the security risk uh, that he's involved with. Right wow. after that, he'll be in supervised release. You know where he, you know he has abide by a certain condition number of conditions like staying off drugs. You know uh, he'll be routinely basically probation. He'll be on probation. Essentially, for the next five years, you know what, whatever that encompasses, and there'll be specific things to him that the judge will order based on based on uh, on his history, okay. like 
so that would be that would be the next step in terms of protection right um the government does have the resources uh to provide protection but i think somebody of his means uh, his money i don't think the government is going to want to spend their money to protect him so and they're going probably going to have him pay pay for his own protection mm. Mm, mm, mm. wow this is this is great man i you know this this case is so interesting from so many different perspectives because you know we all kind of watched his rise and and, it, and we saw how dangerous it was but it was entertaining I'm, I'm not gonna lie it was entertaining to watch him and then as we saw this case unfold you know there's so many different reports about what was going to happen you know there are even people wondering whether or not he was a plant there's there's all kinds of different and things. the level of criminal enterprise he actually was involved in this wasn't just some rinky dink thing that he was involved in yeah so i you know i guess the last question i'll ask you and then we'll get you out of here on this is do you think that and maybe this is a silly question but i'm gonna ask it anyway do you do you think that his sentence his light lenient sentence is impact is you know impacted by a celebrity because you know a lot of people are gonna say that they're gonna say oh if this was a regular citizen it wouldn't have happened um do you think that impacted it and do you think that it should have impacted it Yes, I do think it's, it impacted it, and yes, I think it should have. Mm. Uh, for, for 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 two reasons. The first reason, again, is like I, I alluded to earlier. Uh, he's now the face of snitching, right? Mm. We we also we all saw the memes, and we all saw, you know, you know all the jokes <laughs> that were being that, that were being made right. at his expense. Yeah. Each you know, and each of those things, right, uh, places him in danger, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a danger that he's going to face uh, for the rest of his life. In, in many ways, he might be safer if he had gotten seven years, yeah. <laughs> where by, by 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 the time he, by the time he gets out, you know, the the, the culture would have moved on uh, from uh, from him to to a certain extent. Right. Okay. So, so, so that, that's number one. So, like, I think his celebrity impacts the danger to himself, right, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for cooperating, right? And, and, and secondly, you know, I think it helps the government in other cases going forward, to be, to be honest with you, right? If people are going to be committing crimes and the way that the government solves crimes is through cooperators, there will be people there that see the benefits of cooperating, Right, as a result of what occurred with him in his sentencing, and so that might encourage more more cooperation into the future uh, from other people. Yeah. So, and and for, and for the government, that's currency. Well, that's right. That's that's right. And you know, one of the things I think is uh, c- competing here a little bit is sometimes, you know, what does the what do the streets think, for example, versus what does the government think? What helps the streets versus what what helps the government? And I think you painted, uh, you know, great color on that. And, you know, um, one of the things that, you know, I guess you just have to acknowledge is that, you know, celebrity does matter in certain situations. People don't like to hear that, but it does because they can bring attention to issues that, you know, the quote unquote regular person cannot bring. But Dimitri, we want to thank you so much for joining us on the Pilot Boys podcast. This is very, very helpful. Paints a lot of color on this situation. Um, Again, this is Dimitri Dubé of Dimitri Dubé PC. Um, a, a great lawyer who I've had uh, the honor and pleasure of knowing. Uh, thanks again for joining us on the, on the podcast. No problem, brother. All right, take care, man. Have a good one.
Podcast. A couple quick news and notes. Josh Gordon has been suspended again indefinitely from the NFL. That's just sad, man. I love that. I, I was really rooting for that kid. Yeah, rooting for him too. Well, so, you know, I think the NFL is the least of his concerns right now. Also, I lost my fantasy football matchup in the <laughs> semis. See what happens when you talk that shit. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, Kyle's team performed crazy. He had like Kenyon Drake and Jameis Winston and everybody, and he almost put up 200 points. But, you know, that's what it is. We move still a good that. season all around, man. Yeah, still Congrats. good season. Thanks. Same to you. And Mariah Carey's 1994 All I Want for Christmas is You officially hit number one on the Billboard charts for the first time. It's amazing that that's, that finally just happened. I know, right? Yeah, I know. She's, that's it's not like she needs it, but, you <laughs> right, know. Right, one more hit for Mariah. Anyway, listen to Pilot Boys Podcast. We'll be right back. Our next guest is a sports writer and TV analyst from Baltimore. After graduating from Syracuse, he went on to work for the Detroit Free Press, Washington Post, the NFL Network, CBS Sports, and has now become one of the most prominent NFL insiders in the country. Please welcome Jason Lockhamfora to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Jason, what's up? How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Great. Thanks a lot for coming on. I know... We met a couple of years ago at the uh, the NFL Combine, and yes. we've kept in touch and had some great conversations. So when we started this podcast, I was like, "We got to get Jason on." I'm glad. Uh, you're thanks for us. thinking of me. My pleasure. Definitely. So, um, just just want to kind of get into it. Obviously, we're going to talk a, a little, a lot about the NFL and things that are going on. Sure. There's a lot of newsworthy things, but we also want to talk about you. And um, you kind of have a dream job outside of being an athlete covering sports and making money doing yeah. it. You know, if you could just tell us a little bit about your story, how you got here and, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew, you know, from a very early age that I loved sports. I love to follow sports. I love to wake up in the morning and get the newspaper or go down to, you know, the Seven Eleven and, and buy a Washington post and get a USA today also. And, um, you know, checking out the baseball box scores and, um, you know, this is, you know, we're talking late seventies, early eighties. So way before, you know, the internet, um, you know, a, a different, a different time, technologically speaking, we didn't even have cable TV in Baltimore city wow. until I was junior or senior in high school. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, but I, I always knew that I loved sports, loved, you know, loved the old Baltimore Colts, loved soccer, loved baseball, um, you know, liked basketball on and off at various times. Didn't really love it as much as other sports. Was a huge hockey fan as a kid. Um, and there's not many ice skating rinks in Baltimore, but I happened to grow up literally, you know, two blocks from one of them. So always had an interest in hockey and and liked to write. Was interested in the media, liked reading the newspaper, liked trying to figure out how, you know, these beat writers and columnists came up with their stories. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of knew early on that, that, I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, you know, and at times I thought about, you know, being a PR guy, you know, or, or working for a professional sports franchise, which honestly is something I, I do think I would still like to do. 
at some point in my life, like to live and die with that team. You know what I mean? To feel the wins and the losses. Like I think G- it would like be really GM, cool. Like a GM type role? No, 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 no. I, I don't, I don't fancy myself having that kind of knowledge. I mean, I, I oh, whatever, you know, like I just, I, I don't know, working for a team and, and just being, being a liaison the between marketing and communications and football ops or baseball ops or whatever, like, um, you know, I would love to work for the Orioles and, you know, when I get older, you know, like when I'm, I don't know, you know, not anytime soon, but, you know, maybe work in the press box and do, do, you know what I mean? Do like menial stuff right. just cause I like being around the ballpark, but also be involved in, you know, some ideas they have and pitching ideas to the community or, or helping players come up with community service ideas, you know, just trying to be a, an all around resource. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be involved in sports. I wasn't going to play sports. I did enjoy writing as a kid. I thought I wanted to be a play by play guy. Like there were numerous times where I would watch a game, you know, I would try to get my hands on some game notes or something like that, or some stats. Again, it was hard to do before the internet, you know, try to find a roster somewhere and then try to call the game off TV or, um, you know, so I, I had a passion for that as well, but the older I got, um, the more I enjoyed writing and the more I enjoyed having time to sit back and tell a story that nobody else maybe could tell or, or in a way that nobody else could do it. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, wrote a lot, you know, for the school paper and stuff like that in high school, same thing in college. You went to uh, Syracuse, went into, right? Yeah. I went to Just Syracuse famous. and originally I was a broadcast journalism major. And by my sophomore year, I'd switched to newspapers. Um, you know, and, and stuck with that and, you know, covered student government, covered, you know, race relations, covered a bunch of stuff outside of sports, but also covered Syracuse sports and really covered more than anything else, minor league hockey, um, a ton yeah. of AHL hockey. And, and, uh, yeah. So, you know, I don't know how deep you need me to, you know, you want me to you go know, around. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's good. Like one thing that we, we want to have happen on this podcast is the why of why you're, where you're at. And I think a lot of young people who want to get in a career want to hear the story. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I would just say real quick, be your own advocate. Mm -hmm. If you want to get into the sports media, read as much as you can think about why you are, you like certain writers, you like certain things, and then don't be afraid to replicate it. Don't be afraid to reach out to people. Um, Don't be afraid to, to ask, can I get a credential for this? Can I yeah. get a credential for that? Right. Um, you know, when I was in college, my, a lot of my weekends, I was driving from Syracuse to Adirondack or Syracuse to Providence or Syracuse to Cornwall, Ontario or Syracuse to Rochester, because there was somebody who would let me freelance that game. Like if whatever, it's a grind, right? The PEI senators are playing the Adirondack Red Wings. <laughs> and there's, there's nobody, you know what I mean? Nobody's sending a, a beat writer from the maritime provinces, you know, on that road trip with the team, I would track down the sports editor in, you know, Prince Edward Island, Canada at the small paper there, the citizen, I think it was, I don't know, it was an officer of the Ottawa citizen, whatever. Hey, in three weeks, do you want me to, I'll staff that game for you for 20 bucks, you know, and I'll write <laughs> a game story that's tailored to your team, not just what you're going to pick up off the wire from the AP or the, you know, the, or the Canadian press. So that's where I, that's where I hone my chops. Like, 
bringing home as much pizza as I could from the press box, <laughs> trying to fill my bag with it to bring back to my dorm and, you know, trekking around, uh, covering minor league hockey games. And that's when I learned to write on deadline. That's when I learned to network with people because a lot of the low level scouts who were sitting next to me at these games who I got the new 10 years later, when I'm covering the NHL, or eight years later, some of them were GMs or assisted GMs. You know what I mean? And right. I, I knew these dudes when we were both slappy. So, right. you know, <laughs> it, it, it taught me a lot. And, and you know, no assignment's too small. Right. And it, it, the worst thing anybody can say to you is no, but it can't hurt to ask. Right. Yeah, now, now, now getting to where you're at now, right, where you're an NFL insider, you're known as that. You know, take us into what that job means. Obviously, it's it's a tough job, right? You have to build the trust of these organizations and the trust of people to tell their secrets to you before anyone else. There's only a handful of people out there of your stature. Just take us a little bit into that and, and, and how you have gotten to where you've yeah, gotten there. It's a weird little, uh, <laughs> weird little subsection of, uh, of the media. Um, I, I don't like that term at all. I just think it's yeah. pretentious, yeah. but yeah. I, it's way over my pay grade. I, um, I just, I just, it's your title now. You have to own an it. NFL reporter. No, I get it. But I mean, it's, you're just a reporter. Yeah. Like, I mean, insider, I, I don't know. I think it's cheesy, but I understand Yeah, it is what it is. Um, you know, it, 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 it really is just, it's a, it's, it's really comes down to people and relationships and you're, you, you said it, um, getting people to trust you. Um, and it's also a big part of it is building up your own BS detector and figuring out why is this person telling me this? And am I getting 50% of the truth, 75% of the truth, 90% of the truth, 10% of the truth? You know, I, I think it's, you really learn, especially in this day and age of Twitter and, and being able to instantaneously blast things out to hundreds of thousands of people without having that editor sitting there with you to go over it with you. You know, you have to be, there's times where I'll reach out to, you know, people in our news department for this or that, but there's also the rush of like, Oh, I only have, you know, five seconds maybe to get this out. It's a, it's just, it's a weird little world to live in. I'll put it that way. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of seedy stuff that goes on, uh, you know, but you know what? There's seedy stuff that goes on in the NFL and there's seedy stuff that goes on in the agent business. And there's seedy stuff that goes on in, in journalism or, you know, Every people pretending to be journalists or whatever, you know, it's a crazy time that we're living in. Um, and, and, and I wanted to different from when I came up, you know, you'd write a story that night and then you'd hope that nobody else had it in the morning. You know yeah, what I mean? That, that's that, just like, that's so quaint. You know what I mean? Like that, that's such a cute thing to think back of like from where I came up, where there was no email, there was no internet. We filed stories on a tan, what we called a Radio Shack Tandy word processor, where you would take what were called couplers, <laughs> and you would take a rotary phone and put the phone in the couplers and have all this coding to try to connect with the computers at the back of the crazy. newspaper. Mm. And that's how you would send your stories. And sometimes it might take, depending on the line, like 10 minutes to send an eight-paragraph story. Wow. And like, to, to, to go from that to now the, the, the instantaneous reach of Twitter it's great. It, it's almost, I almost feel like my entire industry has changed three or four times since the mid nineties when I was coming up. So, and that's yeah, actually what it's, I, that's actually weird. what I wanted to touch on was that, you know, you've kind of seen both eras, right. And like, do you, yes. do you, you know, not having a filter and people being able to report anything and not kind of having to go through. And also no process. consequences, people being able to report stuff consistently. That is just, it's crazy. 
totally wrong and it's like it doesn't matter it happens in a vacuum like it's just a it's a totally different dynamic than you know me sitting down and thinking about my earliest editors at the Baltimore Sun or the Detroit Free Press or the Washington Post it's just it's it's dramatically different it's almost like what's happened in the news side of things where now there's alternative realities, right? Like if you're watching MSNBC or you're watching Fox, you're like, it's like you're living in two different countries. Yeah, I feel crazy. like it's happened in sports as well in a certain way where like, just throw stuff against the wall. You know what I mean? Somebody will buy it. Like you, you, nobody will really censor you as long as people are tuning in and they're clicking on the stories. Just keep doing it. Well, let me you ask, know, let me ask Jason, let me ask a question too, kind of about that, because that, that brings up an interesting point when you're working through, you know, with or for a network, so to speak, or an, an entity, but you also have your own Twitter platform. Like, for example, you have half a million followers on Twitter. What, how does that work? Do you, do you get to say what you want to say and it just be representative of you? Or do you feel, or is there a bigger <laughs> obligation that you have to? I have come with? to, I have come to <laughs> find out that there uh, are guardrails. Uh, there are guardrails. Yes. Uh, I have that I have frequently bumped up into them. Yeah. Not so much lately. <laughs> right. Knock wood. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I've come to learn that it's more than just my platform and the role that I'm in. Gotcha. Um, and yeah. I get it. Um, I've come to understand it. Uh, there, you look, there's, there's give and take in any industry and in any job. Um, and yeah, I, I can't just use it as my sort of personal bully pulpit. Yeah. Um, which, which I understand, but, um, yeah. that's kind of, the, you know, that's kind I, of the nature of the nature of the beast because, you know, you see people who get, you know, who say things and then they get in trouble because people attribute it to their employer. And right. so it's kind of, you know, there's a, it's kind of a touchy line right there. Yeah. It, you know, it is. And you wear a lot of different hats. I mean, I also write columns for CBS sports.com and go on CBS HQ to talk about those columns. And a lot of times there's, there's strong opinions. Now they're, they're reported based opinions. It's not me going off half cock. You know right, what I mean? It's, right. I'm still wearing my reporter's hat, but I also, I mean, we don't have that many NFL voices. You know, it's me, right. it's Pete Prisco. We recently hired, um, you know, a, a writer from SI who's doing a really good job, but you know, we don't have that many people who are weighing in on the issues of the day. So, there are times when I'm an analyst slash columnist, and then there's times where I'm also just, you know what I mean, just the straight sort of reporter. Give me the facts, and then there's times when you're, you're you know, you're you're right. going on radio shows to promote the network, and those can skew into more of, you know, opinion versus fact, and right. and right. so it is. It's a it's a like I said, it's a weird, um, it's a it's a it's an era in the media that I never would have saw coming. <laughs> You know, 25 years ago when I started in it, um, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's great. I mean, I like the fact the fact that any person can be a journalist in a moment, you know, and they find something out, and and you know, right. the, the, it's it, the fact that people can blog, people can 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 immediately create and and start cultivating their own voice through the internet, through blogs, through podcasts. The accessibility of that, I think, is awesome. But as it pertains to the job I do, it's, it's a 24-7 news cycle. You know, there, there are no deadlines anymore. Right. Um, and it's a weird, weird headspace at times to kind of think about 
But so <laughs> yeah, know, what, so, what we're really doing sometimes. Well, you know, and that's that's the thing. Even you know, I guess for all of us too, right? You know, and this we we all kind of have to think about what other things are like even for me like I re- realize I represent I'm representing my family when I'm tweeting like you know if I say certain right. things it's like oh well how's my dad gonna feel about that you know what I mean so it's yeah. kind of that weird thing but I do want to transition a little bit into some more substantive stuff NFL related um Baker Mayfield let's talk let's let's talk some Baker Mayfield okay so we did a we did a poll on our our Twitter account the other day uh about whether or not Baker Mayfield essentially was he overrated or was he basically just a victim of, you know, bad coaching and bad situation? And it was relatively split. I think a little bit more, maybe 57% in favor of, of him being overrated and, and 43% um, the other way. And I guess I just want to get your thoughts kind of um, on how you see that situation actually shaking out in Cleveland. Well, he's not going anywhere. Um, he's a <laughs> franchise. He's a made man. Don't nobody look twice at Baker. Like, um, he he obviously feels empowered to say whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the Haslam's do. I, I wrote a column today. Um, there was a period of a half season when the Cleveland Browns were a stable professional grade football operation. They actually strung wins together. Really? Six months. They That's a long time. <laughs> they didn't beat themselves. Right. Not ha- you know there was there was half a season, <laughs> eight weeks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where you there was one voice where people were held accountable. Where you know it, you couldn't blow off treatment, you couldn't show up late for the team plane, you couldn't break dress code and get away with it. You know what I mean? You couldn't pop off about the medical staff or whatever. There were there was a bad cop who was willing to be the bad cop, and people were held accountable. And they finished five and two, and they took a Ravens team that won the division down to the final play in week 17 in Baltimore in tough conditions. And I know it ended with an interception, but like all that happened and it didn't happen by design because they fired, you know, they brought, they should never brought you back. I mean, we could go off through that, but they had a date. They couldn't overthink it. They couldn't navel gaze. They couldn't conduct a, you know, three month meandering coaching search, talking to 55 people because they had to make a quick decision and they promoted Greg Williams and they, they stumbled into something. And then they went back to the old model, which is a coach who's going to be laissez-faire, a coach who's trying to do too much, calling the plays, installing the offense, and managing the games on Sunday, a coach who's going to be too player-friendly, and no, no bad cop, no checks and balances. And now they find themselves where they are, where Baker's the 30th-rated quarterback in the league. But you don't hear him criticizing his own play. You know, clearly – Whatever he did last off season, somebody needs to tell him, son, that's not going to be good enough this time. <laughs> you know, like fewer commercials, more throwing, right? We're, let's not obsess about our facial hair before, during, and after games. Let's not talk about other people's money anymore. Let's not talk about other people's injuries anymore. Let's not talk about the medical staff anymore. You know what? Stop talking. <laughs> yeah, and it's, right? fun- it's funny because if I-, I read something about Patrick Mahomes the other day about how his agent – basically was like, he's not doing any commercials until he's proven something. And they actually intentionally did that, and that was the plan. Dude. Every NFL break now, the Browns are losing, and you see a Baker Mayfield commercial. Right. Like, so, I mean, and is, that, is that the end of the world? No, but, but, in the, but 
right this year they're back to Miles Garrett almost kills a dude, and then the owner shows up the next week with his beanie on in the box. So what does Freddie Kitchen say? Well, hold my beer. I can wear a T-shirt. Hey, Miss Haslam, watch this. Like that's who they are, right? So you better find that disciplinarian, that taskmaster, and pair him with a young, eager, up-and-coming coordinator. And see if that works. Is that Ron Rivera? I don't know. If I'm Ron Rivera, I don't know that I want to go there. Maybe I'd rather go to the Giants. Maybe I'd rather go somewhere else. But they stumbled into a model that for half a season worked for them, unlike anything that's worked in Cleveland in a long, long time. And if they're smart, they'll rethink it. Because the road they're down right now, if they roll the balls out and bring all these personalities back next year and just say, yeah, Freddie will be better in year two, blah, 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 I guarantee you people will be fired before Halloween. I guarantee you. Yeah, because the players won't put up with it. it. And it's sad because, you know, you hear all these different reports coming out about players telling other teams, like, I guess the Cardinals this past weekend, come get me. And not just Odell now. Now it's Jarvis. Now it's all these other players. And you look at it and it's so sad because we're both Browns fans. So, you know, we had high expectations going into the season, obviously with the type of talent. And one of the things that I actually kind of want to talk to you about, you being a Baltimore fan, there's kind of Cleveland Browns and Baltimore Ravens are kind of inextricably tied to each other yeah. for life, right? Because of kind of just the way things happen. And, yeah. But it looks as though, and it, as much as it pains me to say this, it looks as though those franchises, it doesn't look as though, it is this. Those franchises are headed in two totally different directions. Every year, no matter who the quarterback is, you can expect that Baltimore is going to figure out a way to compete. And every year, no matter who the quarterback is or who the talent is in Cleveland, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And in your opinion, and kind of just covering the sport and covering both of these teams, what is the significant difference between these two franchises? Ownership. Mm. I mean, it starts with ownership. Yeah. You know, um, Steve Bishotti came in. He didn't come in guns a blazing. You know, he had learned under under Modell. He'd been around the team for a while. Um, the, the first, you know, they made a great coaching hire at the beginning. It was outside the box. People forget John Harbaugh was a pretty much a no name, mm-hmm. and they got lucky too. They wanted Jason Garrett, you know, and he said no. And they hired a special teams coach from Andy Reid's family tree, um, who come from a great coaching family, whose dad was a successful uh, head coach, who had paid his dues, um, who himself had been a grunt, but his brother was a superstar, right? So you've got a unique perspective. I mean, Jim Harbaugh was big man on campus. and right. I know the pro career didn't work out at first, like people thought with the Bears, but he still almost took a mediocre Colts team, you know, to a Super Bowl. So, like, all that happened, and, and John was along the ride for that. And they they hired a great guy. And, and you know, they had tremendous – Ozzie Newsom comes over from Cleveland and, and gets promoted and turns into an even better general manager than he is – a tight end. There's some luck involved in it, but I think there's also patience. There's also um, there's just there's a processes. There's there's checks and checks and balances um, that just haven't existed yeah. in Cleveland. There, there's a cohesion. Um, there's just a football culture that the Haslam's have not come close to finding. Although I will go back to just just go back and read some of the articles and and what was going on there. The last two months of last season, like that's that's what they got to try to get back to. Yeah, um, definitely. There is a model, I think, that will get that locker room turned around, and that you know can keep the Haslam's on the perimeter. Um, now it may come with some pushback. You know what I mean? Like Greg Williams was not going to be a bowl of cherries for everybody. Right. He wasn't going to tell the owner what the owner wanted to hear. Right. He's going to tell the owner what he really thinks, and 
he wasn't going to be a pushover, and he would have ideas about staff, but he cleaned that locker room up overnight. And guys played not for themselves, but for the team. There wasn't a ton of penalties. There wasn't all the stuff you saw going back to week one this year with the Tennessee game. You know, it was the best players played their best, right? Yeah. He got the best out of the stars and the grunts because he held them all there. Cause there's one, there's not eight different, you know, you get away with this and you got away with that. You can get away with this, but you can't get away with that. I mean, you know, I, I, I just, yeah, it's, I, I partic- they, it's, they, particu- they it's particularly realistic. it's particularly frustrating for us as Browns fans, right? Because in a lot of ways, a lot of Browns fans look at this as our team. They leave, they win a Super Bowl a couple of years later. I think they have two Super Bowls or one of the best organizations in football, and we're stuck with this. You know, it's just like, what is happening here? You know, and then I, I can tell you this though, from somebody who I was away at college when the whole when all that stuff went down. I was in Syracuse, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm finding out that, Hey, we're, we're, we're going to steal the Cleveland Browns. Nobody in Baltimore wanted that. Like nobody ever, ever, ever wanted, you know what I mean? We wouldn't want to steal yeah, cause you guys don't. the Arizona Cardinals, you know what I mean? Who were crappy at, you know, who, who've been crap Well, they've pretty much always been crappy, but they were exceedingly crappy then much less a hallowed team like the Browns after it happened to us. That's Paul Tagliabue putting a team in Jacksonville over Baltimore. You know what I mean? Like that, yeah. like, at that point, when they put a team in Carolina and they put a team in Jacksonville, if you were a politician in Baltimore, you were part of the Maryland Stadium Authority, or in any way connected to trying to revitalize downtown, like it was pretty clear you had one way to get a team, right? I mean, they put a team in Jacksonville instead of Baltimore. Like, that happened. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, okay, like there's only one way you're going to get one, and you're going to have to hijack the system to yeah. get it. So, and for years, people, like it took a while for a lot of people to come around to the Ravens, just because it, it just didn't feel right like that's the Cleveland Browns like those guys were just playing in Cleveland a couple months ago like it was it's not anything that anybody wanted yeah and, and we talked about Baker before I mean you guys are experiencing the joy of Lamar Jackson right now as Ravens fans I thought he was the best quarterback in the draft we had Cornelius Green on um, a couple weeks ago who was the first black quarterback at um, at Ohio State just give us some color on what your thoughts are on Lamar Jackson, why he dropped, why so many people missed him, and and why he's doing so well in Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, I had him in the first round in my mock, 32. I had him going to New England. Oh, wow. I, I had a really strong sense that he was not getting out of the first round. And now, you know, I, I, I just thought that's where he was going to go. He There was too much potential and the chance for the fifth-year option, and I knew – there were teams that really liked him. Um, like, and, and like, like, I mean, New England liked the kid a lot. They just, at that point, when they saw that running back there, you know what I mean? And Tommy's still got two or three years left. And we can, you know what I mean? We give him a better run game. We win, you know, we win right bleeping now. But, but there were people in that building who very much thought Lamar Jackson late first round could be an absolute coup. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I wasn't surprised that Baltimore did it. I wasn't surprised they moved up to 32 to do it and, and to get that fifth year on him. Um, I thought it for, for, for as um, sort of middling as the franchise had become has how uh, the offense had been so unwatchable for so long, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust. That was their passing game. I mean, it was one check down after the next <laughs> people weren't coming to games. There was no excitement. Ray Lewis was gone. Ed Reed was gone. You know, they were still an okay team. 
but people weren't. The covenant with the with the fans was shaky. I mean, they were playing what amounted to home playoff games in December. The stadium was half full. People were finding uh-huh. other things to do with their Sundays. Mm. So they they needed they needed to try something completely different to shake things up, to let the fans know that we hear you, um, to, to not just be the same old Ravens. And, you know, did I, I thought it would be masterful. I thought it would be transformational for him and the team and the city. I don't know that I thought it would happen this quickly. I thought maybe year three, you know. Um, but if done correctly, and there's enough smart people in that organization, and, and, and people in other organizations I really trust were like, look, if anybody tells you you can't win with this kid, they're either stupid or lazy. They're mm-hmm. like, this kid wants to be great. Now you're going to have to do it a different way. Right. You're going to have to reach him a different way, and you're going to have to be willing to do some things offensively that are unconventional. But if you turn your organization over to this kid, he won't let you down. And I heard that from smart people, not in the Baltimore Ravens organization. You know, so And they have those people. And they were smart enough to realize, Marty Morningweg, you ain't the one. You know what I mean? And Greg <laughs> Roman, let's give you the wheel. Right. Um, and the offseason, the way they built that kid up, going out to OTA, seeing what they did with him fundamentally, um, really rudimentary stuff with his feet work, with his balance, with his hips. Um, you could tell that they were going to do everything they could to, to help him succeed, and that he was going to go home and work even harder. You know, you talked about Baker Mayfield. There, You turn on the TV in Baltimore, you see Justin Tucker on TV, you see Haloti Nada still on TV, you don't see... You don't see the quarterback on TV. He doesn't have a marketing agent. He has not done a single ad locally or nationally. He's not on a billboard. He's nowhere to be found. In fact, they're writing articles in the newspaper like, this is small tomorrow. Everybody knows everybody's dirt. Everybody knows everybody's business. You just do. No, you don't, no one sees Lamar because he's not, he's not at the club. Like He's nowhere. He's not at the fancy restaurant. He's home with his mom, designing T-shirts and sweatshirts, <laughs> and watching film all night. No, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there are literally articles. Like, unless he's doing a community event or unless he's in the facility, you don't see him. He's a good dude. At, That's you know, just who he is because he, he yeah. wants to be great. He doesn't want to be good. He wants to be great. And he knew his strengths and he knew his weaknesses and he threw himself at his weaknesses. And remember, he got no snaps last year. He came in. They were four and five. They were falling apart. He was sick that week. He had to go get IVs in the hospital. They hadn't really fully converted the offense over yet. Flacco would have been getting all the starters reps since August. And he still came out and saved their season, saved people jobs, and got them to the playoffs. Yeah. You know, one thing, that if you saw him in college, I mean, it was, it was apparent that he was special. And not just as a runner, which they tried to turn him, you know, make him out to be. But they, he was a special kid, right? And a special leader. And yes. I think that's, that's the thing that I think is the most impressive thing about him to me. When I watch him, it's not just, oh, he's a special talent on the field. But if you listen to his interviews, for example, he's humble, but he knows what he has. And he's going to and he knows what his deficiencies may be. And he works hard at them. And when you talk to him, his goal is to win Super Bowls. He doesn't care about MVP. And right. I really believe that about him. I really do. No, that's the thing. He's not saying it because it's the right thing to say. No. He believes it like he believes it to his core. Yeah. Um, and I think him and, and you know what? Him going 32 to a stable organization who was willing to do all that is a whole hell of a lot better than had he gone tenth to the Arizona Cardinals. You know what I mean? And then they're firing yeah. the coach that year. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like they're bringing in Cliff Kingsbury or whatever. And maybe that does work. But well, that, you know, that brings, I, I just me, think, that brings well, me to another thing too, because it seems like with Lamar, you know, part of what had to happen, and you you just touched on this, is that you had to go to an organization that was willing 
stable enough and capable uh, of kind of developing a talent like that. And it seems like, you know, I was listening to PTI uh, a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about the coaching in the NFL. And they're saying that right now they believe this is some of the worst coaching in the history of the league. And whether or not that's true, there's something to that. And I feel like that's part of what Lamar is benefiting from is that he went to a staff that was not lazy and that realized that they were going to have, they were willing to adjust their philosophies and not be so ego driven to kind of make this thing work. Absolutely. Um, I I mean, it takes a village with quarterbacks, even great ones. Uh, And, and, and just, you know, having a guy like Ozzie Newsom still in the building. I know Eric DeCosta is the GM now, but Ozzie's there every day. You know what I mean? And all he brings and, mm-hmm. and all of Harbaugh's institutional knowledge of the game through his dad going back decades. You know, and Harbaugh having – I mean, when I, when I would go out there in the spring, like one day it would be like some one college coach out there working with him. Then another day, you know, they had Paul Johnson, the old Navy and Georgia Tech coach out there. They're literally, you know, talking about, you know – triple wing concepts and you know what I mean? The triple mm. option and single P and like they wanted to, they wanted to be sponges. They wanted to absorb any little thing we can take from this and take from that to add to this tapestry of an offense. We're building around this kid. We're going to do like, no, no idea is too stupid. Now we're not just going <laughs> to, you know, steal everything. We got it. We got to synthesize it and make it work for us. But they, they, they were being, um, they were, they were embracing, being as outside the boxes as we can be in terms of, of our philosophy and zigging what everybody else is zagging. Not, not everybody. And, and you know what? Not everybody has the job security to do that as well. And then you've got a Greg Roman who's done this with Terod Taylor, right? Mm-hmm. Who's done it with, with Colin Kaepernick and he's seen what works and what doesn't. And he knows to tailor certain things more to Lamar. Um, no, it, all that, it, it, you know, that's why it's happened fast. I think it would happen for him. One way or the other, even if it took him, you know, leaving somewhere after three years and then going to a good organization, he was going to be a difference maker in this game. For yeah. him to be this much of a difference maker this quickly is, I mean, that's it's pretty astonishing. Yeah. So I, w- I wanted to switch uh, switch gears a little bit to, you know, we're obviously big Ohio State fans. You know, we're V and I are both alums of Ohio State. Yep. And so one of the things that's been in the news a lot lately is, is Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer to the NFL. And I wanted to get kind of your thoughts on what you're hearing. How, how serious is it? There's, there's Dallas, there's Washington, some are even saying the Browns. How serious of, of a thing do you think that is? Oh, I think he badly wants it. I think, he'll take, I, I, I think he'd take the Redskins job. I think he'd take the Jaguars job. I think he'd take any job that was offered to him in the NFL. Really? I think he, I think he needs the action. You know, I think he sees what's happening at Fox, which he's not going to be a media star overnight. You know what I mean? They're badly playing second fiddle to the other, you know, pregame show, and they're never going to get close. Um, yeah, I think he wants it in the worst way possible. Um, is I think it because he'll you work think he's, he's, just, he's just a guy who, you know, he's, he's dri- obviously he's driven by competition. He's, he's coached his whole life. Is, is that kind of how you're looking at it? He needs the next, next challenge kind of? I think so. I think, you know, it's, this isn't, this, he's not getting the rush. He's not getting the adrenaline. He's not, this is not going on TV and talking about football is not his calling. Mm. Coaching football is his calling. Mm. Um, you know, I think he would have left at the USC thing for sure. If they had gone in that direction, but that didn't. And you know, the college landscape, we'll see some of these guys, you know, a nice program that might open up for him. If I'm, you know what I mean? If somebody gets a job elsewhere, that jump, you know, if a Lincoln Riley jumps to the NFL or Matt Rule jumps to the NFL or whatever, I don't hear 
the way I hear it is more urban interested than teams, than teams really interested in urban or thinking that urban is the guy. I think there's a lot of questions about how his style would work in the NFL. Mm. Um, and what specifically about how his style? quickly some others have crashed out like a chip Kelly. Like what, instance, what specifically you know? about his style? Do you, do, have you heard that people will have some questions about? Is it personality you, or is it? You football? can't, you don't have the leverage with a 25 year old making $18 million a year that you have with a 19 year old who, who literally you hold his fate in, in your hands every time you, you, you know, pick your starting lineup. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just that part of it. It's relating to men with kids and not kids who are hoping to be men. And the, the approach and the micromanaging and, you know, I am the power. I am the one. I am, you know, it all roads go through me. Like you, when you're Bill Belichick, yeah, that's different. But no one cares about what you did in college in the pros. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you... It's just a very different dynamic. And for many of the reasons that the Belichick clones have failed in the NFL, I think people look at him saying, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, everyone's talking about Dallas and Washington. Me, I think the job is the Browns job, if any. You mentioned earlier, it seems like they might need some of that micromanaging over there. I mean, and for his legacy, that obviously... Becomes a Cleveland turns turns things around here. He solidifies oh, yeah. his legacy. Yeah, no, I think I think that would be an interesting coupling. Um, I, yeah, I think I think that would be. So, uh, what's your gut saying? Is your gut? I wouldn't saying, rule it out. I'll put it that way. I wouldn't rule it out. Okay, so your gut is your gut, or not necessarily your gut. Gut, you know, inside, you know, feeling. Do you think he's going to end up coaching in the NFL? At some point, I think maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's. I don't. I, I think at some point. I mean, look, the, the over under is like, or the average over under. The average, I think, over the last ten years, there's like an average of six point five coaching firings per year. So he's still a young enough man that, yeah, I, I think he'll have an opportunity. I'm not sure that it's necessarily this coming January. Yeah. Um, but it it, uh, it might be. It might be. Yeah. Well, I was one last question we wanted to talk to you about just before before we get you out of here. Uh, you know, the, the Colin Kaepernick workout, you know, that's it's you know, there's obviously a ton of things you could talk about about Kaepernick. But let's table some of those things and, and just talk about the workout itself and how it was set up, whether or not it was real, whether or not it was a sham. There's a lot of different stories around it. And I'm very curious just your, your opinion on on that whole thing and how that was how that played out. I think mistakes were made on both sides. It's unfortunate that it didn't happen in a better form, um, in a more cohesive manner where you didn't have people driving from the airport to the facility, then back to this high school. Um, I think the NFL had no bedside manner with it. I think it should have been Roger Goodell personally, Mm -hmm. um, in the end and not, you know, people from football operations literally reaching out to, you know, Jeff Nally, uh, Colin's agent, and, and speaking directly, I think they should have um, approached him sooner and, and not tried to do it the next, you know, call him on a Tuesday and try to do it the following, you know, that Saturday. Right. I think a lot of mistakes were made um, in that regard. But I, I do think it could have been uh, a real 
bridge to him actually getting back into the NFL. And I think that if his if he had raised some of his concerns about the waiver on a, on Thursday, say, and had he come out and instead of sending out a press release, you know, two p.m. on Saturday, had he come out at whatever noon on Thursday and said, "Hey, here are the issues with the workout. We 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 can't sign this waiver as presently constructed. Right. If if we can't resolve this by eight p.m. tonight, then we will release the location of where we'll do a workout. We'll still do it in that area. The league has told you know reporters that they that twenty four twenty five teams have asked for permit. You know have have said they plan to attend. We would hope all these scouts still come. Hugh Jackson, we, if you still want to run it, that would be great. You're more than welcome to. But you can't. You know what I mean? It can't be coming down at two o'clock on Saturday and right. then people scrambling around and. You know, so I understand his trepidation completely, yeah. but I also think their timeline and how they did it um, gave people more reason to sort of scoff at it and and to not take it seriously. And you end up with only a handful of teams there instead of three quarters of the league. And it, it didn't look as professional grade as it could have or should have. Right. And it will end up being the final chapter here. I don't, I before they announced this workout, I didn't think there was any chance Colin Kaepernick was ever playing in the league. Mm-hmm. For those three or four days, I'm thinking, well, if this, if everybody handles this perfectly, then I think there's a chance. And then it collapsed, and now it's over. Right, right. Wow. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the Power Boys podcast. Your insight is, is amazing. We could talk to you all day, and hopefully you'll join us again uh, one day. Everybody follow him at Jason Lockham for, uh, on Twitter. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, man. My pleasure. Thanks uh, a lot, hope man. you guys have a great holiday season. Same you to you, too. man. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1, and we have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. You are listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. We are here with Coach Zach Smith, former Ohio State wide receivers coach, and now podcast host of Menace to Sports. Welcome to the show, Zach. Always a pleasure. What's up, Zach? Not much, man. Just hanging out. A little signing day. Yeah. A little snow on the ground, too. A little snow on the ground for signing day. Yeah, man. Yo, so thanks for joining the show. Always, uh, your insight is always valuable to us. One of the things that, you know, we've been looking into, we've been paying attention to kind of what's been going on in the landscape of, of college football. And obviously, you know, we're Ohio State fans, so we look at it from that perspective. But also nationally, you see a lot of, things happen at this time of the year, right? In particular, coaching changes, staff turnover, um, you know, players sitting out, those type of things. So we kind of wanted to get a little bit into that with you uh, from a coaching pr- perspective. We wanted, first question I'll ask you is how do coaching changes, what type of effects do they and can they have on a program, especially at this time of the season? Uh, well, I mean, I think that's a very complicated question because it can have a lot of negative in- impact and a lot of positive impact. Um, and not even uh, talking about replacing a, a coach that maybe didn't do a great job or didn't put out a product you want. Obviously, that could provide some spike in production the following year or in recruiting. But even I've seen where a great football coach, let's say, takes another job. Mm-hmm. And just the the change aspect of a new person running the room can spike production. Not it's not even an improvement in a coach. Mm. It's just different. 
It's like the old uh, psychological philosophy, like paint the walls. Like if you guys come into the studio and the walls are red instead of gray, just innately, you're going to be more stimulated. And all of a sudden your production goes up a little bit. Why? Well, no fucking reason. It's just red now, but it's just, it just changed. (laughs) Like there's no reason. And and so you see that happen and I've seen it happen a number of times. And uh, so it's, it's definitely a trying time for a player. You think about being a, a 19 year old kid and you got recruited by a guy, he brought you in, it's your whole world, whole relationship. Right. And then all of a sudden he's gone. Yeah. And some new guy walks in and it's like, all right, who's this guy? Yeah. Like I was so comfortable with my situation that now there's a new guy. Right. And so that, that can, it can go either way. It's a very fragile situation. So you've seen situations like, like for example, uh, coach Halfley, who's mm-hmm. leaving now going to being the head coach of Boston college, leaving Ohio state. And but he said that you know in in his press conference that he's going to stay through the bowl, bowl game. He has a national championship to win. And then you've seen other situations in the past, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like Brian Kelly, for example, oh, he yeah. left Cincinnati. I don't even think he coached the bowl game. He I didn't. Think he left. No, he played. They played us at Florida. Right. Okay. And, and got smoked. <laughs> yeah. And, and I and, used to, just a side story. Yeah. I used to have a debate with Tim Hinton, who's at Ohio State now, because he was on that staff because they really felt like that was why they got smoked. And just the side story yeah. was that was the most loaded team outside of 2015 that I've ever seen. Wow. And Brian Kelly, they could have been 10 Brian Kellys. They would have got that ass <laughs> so, everyone, so everyone's clear. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. It, it, yeah. it doesn't happen all the time. But go ahead with your question. Sorry. And, no, and, and I was just saying how I remember how. The kids from Cincinnati, they were so hurt. Some of them were even crying mm-hmm. at they just the betrayal that they felt. And I guess so my question to you is, what obligation do you think the coaches do have in these t- particular situations? Obviously, they're in this because they want to advance and do what's best for them and best for their career. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But at the same time, they also have, you know, to a certain degree committed to at least the team, well, at least you would hope that they committed to the team for that season. What obligation do you think coaches have in that position? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're a real a, a genuine football coach and recruited these kids and, t- and have a relationship with them. I think you have a, an immense responsibility. I don't think a lot of coaches view it that way. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I think they kind of view it as that's their job and, and they do a good job and they provide value for these kids. And then when it's time to do something that's best for their family, it's whatever's best for them. It becomes a very selfish mentality, which I don't agree with. I've never done. Yeah. Um, not that I had a lot of, you know, turnover or job changes. I think I had four in my entire career, but um, I think it's coach by coach, right? In my opinion, I think those coaches have the uh, absolute most uh, accountability and, and and they they owe the most to their players yeah. because if, if a coach is getting a promotion, it's not because he did anything. Right. It's because he got people to do something. Mm-hmm. And those people that he got to do that, they're 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 the asset they're the they're the reason right. that, that you're moving on so i think they're the first priority to me yeah and that's not industry-wide that's just my opinion and in the brian kelly situation i think the reason the kids were so hurt is because he made promises to them that he didn't keep mm-hmm. and it seems like to get kids to come to a program you have to prom they want to know that such and such is going to be my coach yeah. right so it's a difficult balance like when you're recruiting are you do coaches be on, do those questions come up from kids? Like, are you going to stay with the program? And yeah. how do coaches deal with those questions? Yeah, I mean, it's always political answers. And a lot of times you're going to say what you have to say. I think back to the Mike Weber situation coming out of high school. Uh, they had concerns that Stan Drayton was going to leave, yeah. didn't know what was going to happen. And I can tell you on the other side of it, Stan Drayton wasn't leaving. Yeah. And it's, you talk about unfortunate timing that made him look like a liar. Right. It's like the day or two after signing day, the Green Bay Packers called him and it was like. Was it the Bears? Or the Bears. Yeah, yeah the Bears called yeah. him. And it was yeah. like, 
I can't turn right, this down. Right. And then it like he leaves three days after signing day, and yeah. people were like, "This dude right. lied his ass off." And yeah. I'm telling you from the other side, no, he didn't. Yeah, like he was a good friend of mine. He really didn't. Yeah. So it's hard. It's like, how can you promise someone forever, ever, I won't do something? Right. I, yeah, I don't know kind of, what's yeah. gonna happen. Like if the Patriots, I keep, people ask me, "Are you gonna coach again?" I'm like, "No, absolutely not." Right. Well, if the Patriots call me tomorrow and offer me eight million dollars, <laughs> I'm gonna go coach. Right, like, right. what are we talking about? Right. Like, that's not gonna happen. So right. how do you how do you predict that? Yeah, and that one other thing too, and, and I guess this is slightly in the in the coach's defense, or not really in the defense, but just to paint the picture clearer, especially at this time period, it seems as though if you do take a new job and you're now a head coach at another job for next season, it seems like this period of time is like a critical recruiting period of time. Oh. So how do you even balance that? You know, the decision, even if you say, yeah, I'm going to be noble and I'm going to stay and I'm going to stay through the bowl game, are you sacrificing potentially recruiting on the other end by not taking these three weeks or four weeks to actually go recruit for your other school. Yeah, I think you need to do, you need to find a nice balance of compartmentalizing both jobs and spending time in both jobs because you certainly can't neglect your new opportunity. Mm -hmm. You can't. Um, I think the other thing that people don't ever talk about is if you look at a study of a new coach, a new, a new regime walks in the door, the success rate of that first class that they basically throw together in two weeks mm-hmm. It ends up, I look at the 2012 class at Ohio State, the 2005 class at Florida. Those classes end up, you end up with some absolute studs. Mm. But I'm talking like three. And there's like over 50% of them don't make it. Because it's such a, just a hodgepodge class where you're you're grabbing kids, taking kids that maybe you don't know a lot about because it's so rushed. And then you're reaching for kids because you need a linebacker, but he might, the next year you're going to out-recruit that linebacker. You know what I mean? So I think if, if coaches really, when they get a new opportunity, can just prioritize the kids they have to get and bank on that full recruiting cycle to get their first solid class, then they can pro- have that time flexibility to give back to the program that they're, I guess, currently or previously at. Right. Yeah, the, th- the thing that bothers me is there's all kinds of rules in place for player transfers, right? I think there are, sim- again, you know, knocking the NCAA, there, sh- there are simple fixes here, right? Like you can't interview for jobs or other programs can't interview a coach for a job until after the bowl games, right? Like, why don't you think that those type of rules are in place to prevent some of these issues? I'm, the, the biggest reason right now is, is whatever, two, three years ago when they introduced this initial, this first signing day. I mean, this first signing day is this week. So if you are if you fire your head coach, I mean, the first signing day, I think they said 85% of all, you know, big time prospects sign on the first signing day. Mm. So essentially your entire first class is signed in December, second week, third week of December, whatever it is. And so it's, you would really cripple a program by forcing that decision to happen after a bowl game when signing day already happened. So now that class is a complete mess. But, and I did have a question on that. When did this kind of early signing day thing start? Because I Growing up, I always remembered signing day being in February. Yeah, it, it was, I think, three years ago was the first time. This is the third signing day, third early signing day. I think my last year was the first year that it came about, and it was uh, it was bizarre. And, and the first year was the most bizarre because no one knew what was going on. It's like, I don't know who's going to sign, who's not going to sign. And what it's become is those, if you're talking about Ohio State, 80 to 90% of your class is going to sign, if not 100. And then you'll have that one or two kids that maybe is like the best corner in the country. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know what? I'm not ready to decide yet. Fully knowing that every school is going to hold a spot for him. Mm -hmm. But if you're that middle tier, even upper tier, that's not the best at your position, and you try to wait till signing day, Ohio State can't bank on getting you. Mm. They have to sign someone now. So now they sign four corners, and it's like, sorry, bro. Like, I know you're a good player, but you're out. Mm -hmm. And so these kids feel that pressure, and so they sign. and, And it's... 
we could talk forever about why the NCAA does what they do, do, and I don't know that anyone knows because most of the time it's asinine, but it's definitely a complex situation that is not really the best for the players, to be honest. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's best for anyone to have an early signing no. day during this time, December 18th, when coaches are preparing for bowl games yeah. and dealing with recruiting. It seems like those things can be fixed. And just want to talk a little bit more about this circus around recruiting now. Oh. Got ESPN covering it. I think a lot of it is obviously driven by the money, right? Again, oh, yeah. this early signing day, if you wake up this morning, you <laughs> open up Twitter or social media, you're seeing every news agency reporting who's signing where. Um, it seems like, you know, what? tell us a little bit about this circus and how it impacts you as a coach recruiting a player who's high profile and how it impacts the player itself, getting all this ten- attention around a decision on where they're going to go to school. You know, what's funny is, uh, and I've never really thought about it, and it just kind of struck me, is uh, it obviously has affected the kid, the recruit, right, the prospect. Because let's say 20 years ago, no one knew these kids. They they knew them when they showed up on the field in the horseshoe. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, as a coach, nobody knew how good of a recruiter you were until they showed up on the field in the horseshoe. Right. It was like both were evaluated by how good is the kid. Right. And nowadays, even in coaching, and this is what I've never thought about is coaches get heralded as this great recruiter before these kids ever play. And it's like, oh, he signed four or five stars. Like, and then does anyone fast forward three years? It's like all four of those kids sucked. Like, no, he's the best recruiter in the country. You know what I mean? So it's what it's done is it's, it's created a media hype. And it's like anything else. It's like, well, he's the best recruiter. It's like, why? Because ESPN said so. Oh, okay. Gotcha. (laughs) Thank you for that info. So it's, it's, it's definitely, it's changed the game completely and it's, it's ever changing. I mean, it's, I, I, I see what's going on now and the people I talk to in the industry is like, it, it is a complete, I mean, shit show. So who's making the money here? Because I feel like anytime you see a circus of this kind of this magnitude and you, you, you hear about things this constantly and, and every media outlet, there's gotta be money involved somewhere. Oh Yeah. Where, where, where's the money? I, I mean, I like that's the question I'm always, I mean, you know what it is? It's, it's in, uh, it's in sports media people that are, uh, most of them are nerds. 24 seven sports have built a platform on this rival. But you, th- you, yeah, you look at that. The guy who started two, four, seven sports started rivals, sold it for like, I don't know what number you could probably look it up. $500 million to Yahoo started two, four, seven sports, then started kicking rivals ass again. Now he's got wow. money in the bank, a whole new, and it's like, it's all this, yeah. it's created a new sports media, uh, Avenue yeah. where it's like all these nerds are making websites and yeah. doing interviews. And it's like, here we go. And it's crazy. Cause I, you know, I, I feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know, obviously I'm, uh, you know, I'm a big, you know, college sports fan and obviously specifically Ohio state fan, but, and so I, you know, I kind of care about recruiting to a certain degree, but I feel uncomfortable a little bit when I get too caught up into it. And I know about this kid who's, you know, in 10th grade, who's, you know, going to be in the 2023. It's like, I don't, I don't really want to get into it that much, but it's being stuffed in my face all the time. And like Zach said, we don't know how good these kids are just based on high school. It's about what happens to them when they come into the program. I've actually looked into this just because you're a five-star doesn't mean you're going to the NFL and it doesn't mean that you're going to pan out at the college level, right? No. And the, the only thing I will say about the rankings and recruiting services is because of, there's so much money involved, they have certainly improved. Mm-hmm. I mean, a great deal. Yeah. Whereas 10 years, I mean, I tell the story all the time in 2000, I want to say seven or six around then 
a guy named Cam Newton comes to camp at Florida is a three-star tight end prospect. No one's ever heard of balls out in camp one day, Florida offers urban offers him. He commits the next day. Everyone's like, he's gotta be a five-star. Like he looked like this and urban said he was good. And you know, they, there was no evaluation. It was just like, uh, look at that guy, a five-star. And now it's like, there's at least, I would say more educated people doing, and it's a better process. So it's, it's better now than it ever has been, but it's still, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to jump back into one, one other thing too. Um, we were talking earlier about like kind of the coach's obligation, uh, especially if they have a new job and so on and so forth. But one thing that that's, we've started to see a lot more of in last, especially in the recent years is players sitting, deciding to sit out yeah. for the, of bowl games, especially when they're not playing in the, for a national championship or anything like that and starting to prepare for the draft. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that and, and, what do you feel about that happening? Do you feel like it's a good thing? Do you feel like it's a bad thing? What do you think about it? Um, the Bradley Roby effect is what it is. He's the first guy to ever do it. Mm. He did it against Clemson when they had uh, Sammy Watkins and all those studs. And he was like, you know what? Kind of a meaningless bowl game. I want to go first round. I'm cool. Yeah. And then he yeah. just had like a, an injury no one knew about and didn't play. Right. But uh, I, I see both sides. I really do. Yeah. I mean, we have created college football. The NCAA has created this CFP, mm-hmm. right? This is all that matters mm-hmm. to Alabama, to Ohio State, to Georgia. So if you don't make it to that, yeah. it's like, nah, now I'm just your cash cow. Yeah. Now I'm just going to go play in the, the dot-com bowl game so that you can make $10 million. I could get hurt, and I've seen it. Yeah. Jalen Smith from Notre Dame played oh in the Fiesta Bowl yep. against us yep. and lost millions. Yes. Yep. said f- he was going to be a top five pick. Top, he was going to be a top yeah. five. They were talking about Joey Bosa or Jalen Smith. Who's going to go first? Yeah. And he fell to the, I think the early second round maybe or third, might've might been, been third, third whatever round. it was. Yeah, maybe second. And, and, and I think about that game is so wild because Zeke played, everyone played yeah. and that kid and Jalen, Jalen Smith played. Yeah. And when I saw that happen, I was like, for what? Yeah, yep. exactly. For what? For yeah. the Fiesta Bowl champion t-shirt? Yeah. Right. Like, and so that I think Sony PlayStation sponsored it so they can sell a million more Sony PlayStations. Nah, I see, but I see both sides. I also see that 2015 team and you look at Zeke Elliott, Mike Thomas, all those kids, they were like, nah, we're playing. Like there was a bond with teammates. So I see both sides. And and when Denzel sat out, I even, I, I made a comment about, I can't remember who the player was. It doesn't matter. I made a comment on social media about it, like how unbelievable what a team player but and people immediately were like oh he's talking shit about denzel ward i was like denzel ward's one of my favorite players i've ever been around right. in a locker room right no i'm not yeah. good for denzel too i'm happy for him yeah it's just like i, I see both sides and I, I don't think anyone's wrong or anyone's right i think i think i see both sides too i mean i i obviously i'm probably more pro player when it comes to this thing because i look at it and i say well you know especially in the game that's meaningless that's been hyped up for no reason these game these bowl games that used to even have more meaning, like the Rose Bowl in those games. They don't have the same type of meaning if they're no. not part of the CFP. Yeah, and so it's kind of like if I'm a, a prospect and I know that you know playing in this game runs a lot runs a lot of risk of me getting injured and that can impact my future. It's like okay, well, you know why don't why don't why don't why am I going to play? But then I also see the side of well, you kind of signed up to do something and these are your brothers and your teammates and yeah. finish the thing out. So to personally, I just kind of look at it and I just say whatever decision they make. That that it just is what it is, and they also have to deal with whatever backlash potentially comes from that as well. Yeah. Right? The thing that bothers me about it is the level of criticism that players get for doing stuff like that versus the criticism coaches get for just taking another job. Oh, when it's the coach, it's like he went for a better opportunity. That kind of overwhelms the conversation. When a player does it, it's he's selfish. He's this. He's that. And that's what bothers me about it more than whether what side of it I'm on per se. Yeah, I'm with you because it's the same conversation, right? 
you got a, you got a, you have a better opportunity in the future that you need to go prepare for. Yeah. What's the difference? Yeah. If I got a the head coaching job at Boston College, or you're going to be a first round pick, we both have something coming up in the future, mm-hmm. and this thing we have going on right now is yeah. not more important than that opportunity. Yeah. And make no mistake, if Ohio State was playing in the Sugar Bowl or some bowl game outside of the playoffs, Jeff Halfley would be gone. Right. Yep. So he's coming back for one reason, to win a national championship and because that's the best publicity for Boston College, better than anything he's going to do in the next two years. That's so true, yep. yeah. If he, he, they win a national championship, that's like the best thing on his resume. What? On his resume you, watch, you watch how many times in the playoffs they cut to him in the press box and say, Jeff Halfley, Boston College, new head yes. coach. It'll be... 10 times minimal. Yeah. Now, Halfley brings up, is actually very interesting because Urban was notorious for requiring coaches to stay for two years. How much impact do you think these coaches coming in for a year and bouncing can potentially have on on programs? Yeah, I really think Ryan has the same philosophy. I do. And in knowing him, um, I think he's he's right on board. But Boston College is a great job. First, yeah, first head coaching job? And he's yeah. from that area. He's he, from the he's northeast. From the northeast, and I think, and Ryan knows that job as well as anyone. He was offensive coordinator there. He knows the the Steve Adazio, who was the head coach. And I know that when it came open, Ryan was the one that reached out to the AD at Boston College, who came from Ohio State, who was Gene Smith's protege, that's now at Boston College. And Ryan Day reached out to him and said, "Hey, listen, I just want to know who on my staff you're you're looking at, and then I want to talk to you about them, and I want to make a plan because we have this." He, Ryan, you talk about handling it like a, a CEO. Yeah, he's a yeah. He was like, all right, timeout. Right. I know what the fuck's about to happen. Right, right. Let, let me let me tell you who's going to run this shit. I am, <laughs> right. motherfucker. Right. He's handling everything like a G. Right. He's like, all right, you, you want to come talk to my guys? Fuck you. Here's when you're going to do it. You're going to do it on Thursday right. at 7. Got it? Not 6. You're going to do it at 7. <laughs> I love and it. you know what? You're going to have Italian sandwiches because I said so. <laughs> the rosy-cheeked assassin over there. <laughs> I'm telling you. I want to get to one last thing before we, we, before we get you out of here. Actually, uh, V had just mentioned Urban, and uh, we talked a little bit earlier uh, in the show about this with Jason. I just want to get your thoughts on Urban Urban Meyer going to the NFL and whether or not you think that's something that's realistic. Do you think it's just hype talk? Because obviously he's one of the most popular coaches out there. What do you think about that? I think it's kind of like when John Gruden was out of coaching. Mm-hmm. Every year it was like, these four jobs are open. John Gruden's the number one candidate. Right. It's like, okay, yeah. Come on, man. He's not taking that job. He's yeah. not taking And then what happens eventually? Oh, shit. He took the Raiders job, right. like out of nowhere. Right, right. So I think it's very similar. I don't think- They dropped Ur- him a bag, though. They gave him oh, like 100 what? million or yeah. something. Crazy. Yeah. But I think, I think that's where Urban is right now. I think he is not going to coach ever uh, unless this Fox uh, Big Noon, whatever they call it now, Big Noon kickoff thing maybe kind of fizzles. Yeah. Then I think he looks into it. But I don't think he'll do anything this year. I've heard all the the- I guess the rumors, and I just don't see a fit. I don't think he would come out of retirement to go coach the Browns or Redskins or anyone like that. I don't think he would want to bump heads with Jerry Jones in Dallas. I just think he's so comfortable with the competitive environment he's in on TV right now that it would have to be like, I got to take that one. And I don't know what that is. Maybe the Patriots after Belichick or, you know, something where it's like, you just have to. If he he took the Browns job and saved them and, and won, he would be like, the all-time greatest coach of all time. Yeah, you, <laughs> I mean, and, and don't think he doesn't think about that. You know what I mean? Like that, there is something to that. I mean, a Northeast Ohio guy, and, and I know he's turned down the Browns job at least once before. And I, I, I don't think he will. If you're asking, will he coach next year? No, my answer is no. Now, obviously, you can't predict anything. So well, yeah. who knows? Thanks, man. No, that's that. That was great. I think uh, 
you know, one of the things that, you know, as Ohio State fans, we 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 kind of follow this thing a little bit. Like we want to see what's what's Urban gonna do next. You yeah. know, Urban Watch. You know, it's 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 interesting to us. And I think no matter what he does next, it's gonna be interesting. If he coaches in the NFL, it'll be interesting because to me, I believe his style was more suited for younger guys, but maybe he would adjust his style if he got to the NFL. Well, he would have to. Yeah. That, the moral story is, and I, and I personally, I don't think he can. Mm. It's just, that's kind of like his DNA. Yeah. It's, we're not even talking about like, oh, no, you have to not be a spread offense guy. Now you have to be more of an NFL offense. Like, no, no, no. Right. You're talking about like wake up in the morning, look yourself in the mirror, and you have to be someone else. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm, yeah. I don't see it happening. That's a hard thing. And he's got, a, like you said, he's got a good gig going. At yeah, he does. Anyway, thanks so much, Zach. Thanks uh, for joining us on the Pilot Boys podcast again. You're insight is always very valuable make sure you guys check him out follow him on social media at coach zach smith on twitter and instagram and go check out his podcast menace to sports it's available everywhere it's one of the hottest sports podcasts out right now check it out check it out appreciate it fellas all right talk soon that's all we have for today's show big thanks to our guests dimitri dube jason lakimfora and zach smith thanks to everybody for listening don't forget sharing is caring Subscribe to the Pilot Boys podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out! Pilot Boys, we get on up. We gon' fly, boys, we get up. Once we get